We typically record episodes of Don't Sleep New York about two weeks before they are released. But with the primary election for New York City's mayor fast approaching, campaign and candidate updates happen in real time, and our episodes can't always keep up. This episode is about progressive mayoral candidate Diane Morales, who up until a few days ago was a beacon for leftist policy, especially in a race that is being led by more moderate candidates. Our episode covers Diane's campaign policies, but it's important that you know a few recent updates. Morales' campaign staffers have protested against her, demanding that she recognize their efforts to unionize and criticizing her campaign for fostering racism, sexism, and general hostility towards unions. Several key aides have even been fired as a result of these efforts. Needless to say, the progressive image that we discuss in this episode has been tainted quite a bit. So as you listen to Don't Sleep New York, it's important to focus on Diane Morales' campaign policies, but equally important to pay attention to what is happening inside her campaign itself. You're tuning in to Don't Sleep New York, a podcast for the New Yorker who wants to stay up on policy and politics in the city that never sleeps. My name is Arpan, and I'm joined by Matt and Rana Joy. We're three New Yorkers who are trying to become more informed about the inner workings of our city, and we want to take you along for the ride. Before we get started, like, subscribe, and follow Don't Sleep New York on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So far, we've covered three candidate deep dives, Andrew Yang, Maya Wiley, and Eric Adams. Today, we're looking at someone who is considered the most progressive of all mayoral candidates, Diane Morales. So who is Diane Morales, and what does she stand for? You know, I, I think my my life is much more reflective of the uh, lived experiences of average New Yorkers. Um, growing up in a, in a sort of low-income, working-class family, being a woman of color, being a head of household, being a single mother, um, working to sort of, you know, make ends meet and pr- provide for my family. I think that's that's much more reflective of the average New Yorker than any of the other candidates in this race. Um, but then, you know, combined with the fact that I've actually spent my entire career um, as the CEO of organizations that worked to directly impact and improve people's quality of life. And the last thing I'll say on that is that, you know, I'm um, I am not accountable to any sort of special interest or corporate packs or, you know, uh, well uh, endowed, uh, you know, financially endowed folks. I am solely accountable to the, the everyday New Yorkers whose my life has who my life has reflected. Um, and I think that separates me as well. As Diane Morales says in that clip, she really sells herself as a normal New Yorker. She's a first generation immigrant in New York, grew up in Bed-Stuy, went to Stuyvertson, and then continued to commit the rest of her life to public service in New York City. Yeah, she was part of the New York City Department of Education and continued involving herself in education nonprofits such as Jumpstart. Um, And then since 2010, Morales has been the executive director and then CEO of Phipps Neighborhoods in the South Bronx. Which is a social services organization that's committed to fighting poverty. And now she is running for New York City mayor 
on the premise that she lives more of a normal New York person's life than any of the other candidates who are running. Diane Morales centers her campaign around three ideas, dignity, care, and solidarity. Within dignity, we have a topic that we've been talking about a lot on this podcast when discussing mayoral candidates, and that's the police. I share every New Yorker's desire to live in safety, but the reality of it is that safety is not synonymous with policing. We've got the largest municipal police department in the nation. If the size and the funding associated with policing equated safety, we'd be the safest city in the country. But the reality of it is that our communities are over-policed and under-resourced. So the violence that we're addressing or that we're witnessing is actually happening on the watch of the NYPD. Dan Morales is one of the most aggressive candidates in the field when it comes to defunding the police. She's proposed a reallocation of the budget of up to $3 billion, which represents about half of the total NYPD budget. Does she have any specific plans about what to do with that money? Yeah, just to add to that, she's the only candidate who expressly uses the word defund the police. So not reform, defund. And the primary cornerstone of our idea of shifting this funding is around the idea of a community first responders department, which essentially would take a lot of like the mental health, social services side of what the NYPD are doing right now uh, to specialists who are trained. And specifically, she calls out that the NYPD is not trained to address these issues. And we've, we've said this on other episodes of this podcast that the NYPD gets called for any issue and most of the time it's a nonviolent issue. So Diane Morales's plan with the Community First Responders Department is for trained personnel with backgrounds in trauma-informed intervention, responding to everything from mental health issues to social issues. I think the stat is 4% of 911 calls are to violent crime. Everything else, like to your point, Arpan, is social services, mental health related. She really wants to remove the NYPD role in everything. She even goes as far as saying, let's get them out of the schools. Let's get social workers in there. I think my main, I guess, criticism of Diane Morales's platform, I think we all generally agree with her rhetoric, and this is good, but she doesn't actually have a plan on how do we cut that $3 billion, right? It's not like you could wake up tomorrow and just take away $3 billion. That's going to have some consequences, either people losing their jobs or certain parts of the NYPD now no longer having funding without a smooth transition. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can confidently say cutting the entire police budget in half while it's something I support in principle, is probably not realistic. Because like you said, Rana Joy, you can't just all of a sudden make like Thanos cut it in half. It doesn't seem like a possible path. And that speaks to the fact that like some of the other candidates, Diane Morales is an outsider looking in. And I think one trend that we've seen, we really like a lot of her progressive policies. And if you look at her website and the campaigns that she outlines, it's a lot of bullets around, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this. It's a lot of catchphrases. There's not a lot of how we're going to do it. And that speaks to maybe the lack of experience in terms of running and operating within a bureaucracy like New York City and like the NYPD. And we'll definitely get into this a bit later into some of her other ideas. But personally, the way I've kind of viewed her and in some of how she expresses herself, I almost see her as a foil. She's almost holding this line of 
progressive left trying to push the other candidates toward that direction rather than in like pushing for her candidacy more generally. And she's actually said as much in the debates that happened the first Democratic official debate. Yeah, she actually was open about saying to the rest of the candidates that she feels like a lot of those candidates have actually moved closer to some of her views. And I do think that's an important part of her presence in this race. And something that we mentioned in our RCV podcast was that the uh, existence of ranked choice voting allows for this type of candidate to get a lot more exposure and potentially a lot more votes than they might have previously. And what what will be interesting to see is how does that exposure affect the candidates who maybe are more likely to win? I mean, if we're going to be honest, Diane Morales is a grassroots candidate. And we'll in a little bit, we'll unpack what that has meant for her campaign. But she's not, you know, the big ticket New York Times endorsed candidate. So It'll be really interesting to see how that plays out with ranked choice voting. Yeah, and and just a few other ideas that touch on that uh, she addresses as part of our larger police strategy that I think are great and are more specific, I guess, than some of the other candidates. She's really focused on eliminating pretrial detention, eliminating bail. So we don't have this concept of people sitting in jail waiting for their court date, which, as we know, causes a lot of mental damage to that individual. Another campaign cornerstone of hers is around guaranteed housing and just housing in general in New York. I think this the city needs to shift its paradigm for housing from one that provides shelters to one that really seeks to provide permanent af- affordable housing for people. I think we need to go to deeper affordability. One of the flaws of the de Blasio plan was that it relied too heavily on developers whose priority is ultimately the bottom line. And we need to actually shift shift all of those incentives into investments in the community. And I think that means cooperative housing and social housing, community land trusts. I think those are all tools that... Um, can be used in creating and expanding the pathway to both increasing the number of units that are available and the, the affordability of what get, what becomes available. We covered this in one of our earlier episodes as we started to dive into affordable housing and what it means to New York City. So if you're listening to this and any of this sounds confusing, definitely recommend that you go back and listen to the affordable housing episode. She basically breaks it up into two pieces. So there's the homelessness piece and then there's NYCHA and affordable housing. So on the homelessness piece, she's very specific to what she cites. And the New York Times has actually cited is the 100,000 school-aged children that are housing insecure, so potentially risking not having a roof over her head. So she's committed that within the first 100 days to be able to repurpose hotels or a little bit more dilapidated buildings and put those kids in there. So that's the key message she has around homelessness. And again, it seems like doing all of that in 100 days is ambitious, but it's certainly in the right direction. And one of her main points is that the existing homeless shelter infrastructure is not made to serve as actual regular housing for homeless people, but in many cases it does. And that ends up being costly both in a financial sense, but it also just leads to less stability for those people in need. And as we then look at the second part of her housing policies, which is really thinking about affordable housing in general, she's actually one of the few candidates who takes a very, very hard stance on the private versus public housing market. 
um, and how we how we create affordable housing. She's big on the concept of housing as a right, which is America Western speak for social housing. Um, and basically through that concept, she believes the city should be buying lots of land or using city owned places giving it to nonprofit organizations to build affordable housing. Because as Arpon, you alluded to, her biggest problem with private development is that they're too focused on the bottom line. And she brings up the exact language that I know all of us are a big fan of. And again, we discussed on our pod on affordable housing about the problems with the AMI calculation where median income is is way too high for the New Yorkers who need it most. And it's somewhere around, I think, $80,000. 100000 100000 And those New Yorkers who are most in need hover more around the $30,000 mark. And one of the big failures of de Blasio's housing policy was that it ended up creating more units for that median area around 80000 100000 Diane Morales has been very, very specific in calling out that we need to address those New Yorkers who fall in the more extreme need. And that type of language gives me a lot of confidence about how she will address housing and how she will confront the real estate power within New York. And she's already confronting it. I mean, she's gone as far as saying she will prevent and ban the city from selling land to private developers. And she will also end tax breaks for private developers. So again, touching back on affordable housing, a lot of affordable housing today and a lot of solutions that are in place and that are proposed by other candidates is to incentivize the private real estate market to generate a certain percentage of their new buildings into affordable housing. Diane Morales is saying no. She's saying, no, we're not going to do that. It shouldn't even involve the private market. It should be the public responsibility, meaning the government responsibility to create, manage, and own affordable housing. And if if that sounds far-fetched, Diane Morales, like I think a lot of progressives, look to some of the models that we see in Europe to prove out some of these things and show that they do in fact work. So one model she has brought up specifically is in Vienna and Austria, where 60% of the approximately 1.8 million residents live in government-subsidized apartments. So she's envisioning a world where it's much easier for people making a median income and below to live in safe and nice government housing. Yeah, and on top of just creation of housing, she hopes to pivot the management of NYCHA also, veering away from some other candidates have mentioned, hey, let's bring in private organizations to do it. They have more funding, et cetera. But she, she's proposing a concept of resident management corporation, whereby it would actually be the residents of NYCHA who have some agency to elect someone who is able to look over the management of their organization. I, I think the biggest hole in her housing plan is her funding is heavily reliant on federal funding, which is the case for everyone, but she doesn't even speak to any imagination of raising funds outside of getting federal money to how we can address the housing crisis. Yeah, I think she specifically calls on requesting $35 billion from the federal government to support this. And as we know, the federal government historically has not provided the level of funding for housing, especially in New York, that is needed. So it's ambitious. There's not a lot of, like Rana Joy said, a lot of substance behind how she plans to pay for a lot of this. So one one specific that I do want to bring up, though, is that she does have an idea to create a land value tax on blighted or vacant land that would raise approximately a billion dollars a year and also discourage speculation, which is something, again, that kind of aligns with her general 
distrust of the private real estate market. So she's, again, not without specifics. I think there's there's definitely a lot of things that could use some sharpening up. But there are within her plans some specific calls to action that I think could be effective and obviously might rub the traditional real estate establishment the wrong way. I know both of you are fans of Capital City. So how would the author kind of grade her approach to this? Yeah, I mean, I think Samuel Stein, the author of Capital City, the book that Rana Joy just mentioned, I think in, in his viewpoint, moving more authority and control of housing into the public sector is the only way that we're truly going to address the most at need. It's the only way that that 30% AMI bracket is going to be addressed because the more you try to incentivize private developers, the more you try to involve them, the more they're just thinking about their bottom line. And that's a reality that we've seen time and time again. So Sounds like uh, Diane Morales has Samuel Stein's vote. We don't want to speak for him, but if I had to place a bet on it, that would be my bet. At least when we're talking about housing, um, that would be a pretty safe bet. So aside from housing, aside from the NYPD, what are some other things that have kind of stood out to both of you in Diane Morales' campaign? One thing I want to bring up is around some of her financial or banking-related proposals. So the first one I think is pretty simple, and I say that partially because to some extent we discussed a very similar proposal that Andrew Yang has. And in fact, Diane... The People's Bank of New York. The People's Bank of New York. And Diane Morales actually calls it the same thing, the People's Bank. They function a little bit differently though, right? So Andrew Yang's version of the People's Bank is not really a consumer-facing bank, right? It is a non-for-profit that subsidizes the existing banking infrastructure that is already in place in lower-income communities. So Diane Morales' vision of a People's Bank seems to function more as an actual bank as opposed to something that's simply going to fund the existing infrastructure. So her People's Bank will accomplish a lot of the same things that Andrew Yang had described in his version of the People's yeah. Bank, and that's addressing underbanked people, helping uh, marginalized populations get access to small loans and small businesses. And again, all of these things are bulleted on her website, but to give Andrew Yang a little bit of credit, he had an entire white paper on this. It was much more specific and spelled out. Regardless, I'm a fan of this type of proposal. I think we've discussed before the importance of serving underbanked communities. And so it's great to see that this is a specific policy proposal. And whoever wins this election, I hope that a concept like the People's Bank is on their agenda. So in addition to the People's Bank, another, I guess, financial related item that she brings up is an increase of a wealth tax. And this is another thing that in principle, I'm a fan of, but I do want to bring up a concern, which is that particularly throughout the pandemic, we saw a lot of wealthier New Yorkers flee the city, whether for simply the suburbs or whether to go as far as Florida or Texas. Again, in principle, I like the idea of a wealth tax, but if the negative result of that is the wealthy people simply leave, do we shake our heads and say, that's fine, we'll live without you? Or do we have to also live with the consequences of that lost tax revenue? Yeah, so her her specific wealth tax, she's calling solidarity tax. She's really thinking about how can the wealthier New Yorkers pay their fair share to take care of others in New York? So her solution calls for increasing the income tax rate of 3.876% 
to 4.4% for New Yorkers making a million dollars or more. And that's about 1 million New Yorkers. Now, to, to Matt's point, we saw an exodus of New Yorkers going down to Florida. And we've also seen that there's actually a lot of New Yorkers who are, are skirting taxes in New York by living, what's the number, 181 days or something like that out of the year, living somewhere else, maybe Florida, to skirt New York City taxes. So people are already taking advantage of the system when they're that wealthy. To be fair, by the way, Diane Morales does call out on her website that there is no evidence that such a migration would take place, assuming she implements this wealth tax. So maybe we're all idiots. I don't know. But I think it's worth speculating on. I think the the more common counterpoint that's been raised is that echelon of people are not really that opposed to paying taxes. They really want to see their tax dollars do something. So to that point, if Diane Morales is pushing this really progressive platform that might actually incentivize and inspire people to be very okay paying that tax. Yeah, and she she specifically says that the money raised from those from that wealth tax would be going towards small business recovery efforts, workforce generation and kind of vaguely but still important the most vulnerable in New York City. Yeah, I I wanted to pivot a bit more into just Diane Morales's overall candidacy. I think it's worth pointing out one thing that is really beautiful about her candidacy is the fact that she's able to competitively run against the likes of a Ray McGuire or Andrew Yang or people with big money backing. And that's largely in part of New York's matching fund program, which very simply stated says if you have a lot of small donations, so anywhere from like $10 to $250, and you have amassed a certain amount of those, you are eligible for some kind of matching, the max of which is eight to one, which is a significant amount for a campaign like she's running, a grassroots campaign. Yeah, she has the most donations as of right now. So not the most money, but the most individual donations, which is a stat you've probably heard thrown around back during the presidential election in regard to Bernie Sanders, who had a similar distinction. And so New York's eight to one matching program allows for her to remain competitive without having to take on big money donors. And she has grassroots momentum. I think standing on a platform that is as progressive as she is, one, there's two, two effects of that, right? One is she's standing out in the mayor's race. Uh, we said this when we started this podcast that because we're talking about the Democratic primary for mayor, a lot of the candidates kind of stand on the same policies and platforms and maybe just tweak it a little bit to make it their own flavor. I would say out of all the candidates, Diane does stand out in terms of having a real voice. She also has some really strong endorsements, including the Working Families Party. That might be because Scott Stringer, the disgraced now Scott Stringer, lost their endorsement, but that's pretty big for her. The one thing I wanted to jump in on before we go a bit delve a bit deeper on her candidacy in general is a blemish that has come up matt do you want to share with us what that is sure so the term that's used in the news articles is that she was a well compensated executive and this is at phipps neighborhoods the nonprofit we had mentioned earlier and apparently the social services arm which is where she worked is not directly related to the real estate arm of that organization, which is called Phipps Houses. But nonetheless, she has been forced to answer for the fact that Phipps Houses itself is one of the worst perpetrators of evictions of tenants within the city. And so some of her responses have kind of, I don't want to say brushed it off, but she's tried to lean on the fact that 
the division of FIPS that she ran is not directly related. But nonetheless, there are some rumors that the reason she did not originally win the Working Families Party nomination was because of this issue. Yeah, it seems pretty antithetical to her platform in general. I also like personally don't agree with that as like a blemish on her thing. Like I don't think it's big enough or important because I think it probably is accurate that like they're different entities. If the the but would you give that benefit of doubt to like Andrew Yang if he was associated with it? I I, I want to like I don't think we would give Andrew Yang like we're not giving Andrew Yang the benefit of doubt or a lot of people aren't because the person running his campaign is like Tusk whatever which is supposed to be super ruthless and like have really bad ethics and stuff like that. So I think in 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 the realm of like information you need to know about i think it's a fair point because it did play a role it's also the only criticism that i can think of outside of not having any plans to, I, <laughs> or like it, fine in yeah yeah it's, but it's, none, none of the candidates have plans yeah. really yeah you know? uh, most of the candidates operate in some form of vagueness so other than the the two criticisms i can think of for dan morales outside of this phipps Scandal's a strong word, honest. I don't even think it's that far. No, it's not but, a scandal. But the yeah. only other issues I can think of are that she's too progressive, which depending on your politics, you can cite as an issue, or that she's not specific enough on some of her policies, which again is a valid concern, but most of the candidates aren't very specific. Or are not going to stick to whatever specifics they... Every said, campaign yeah. is aspirational, and, and to some extent we just need to understand that. So... I think it's worth bringing up, but I also don't put that much weight into it personally. This episode is not an exhaustive look at Diane Morales' campaign and policies, but we hope it helps you kickstart your own research into her candidacy. Don't Sleep New York is not endorsing Diane Morales, but she's certainly making a strong progressive argument. And like we mentioned earlier, her vision for a progressive future in New York City is a net positive, even if she doesn't win. As they say, shoot for the stars and you might land on the moon, or something like that. Either way, we'll be keeping a close eye on her campaign as we get closer to the primary election in June. In the next few weeks, we'll be doing similar episodes about the other candidates, helping you get started on your own research before you head to the voting booth. To stay up to date on the election, candidates, and general happenings in New York City, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DontSleepNY. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your podcasting platform of choice. It really does help us out. The music you heard in this episode was provided by Brooklyn-based artist and producer Jackery. We'll see you all in a few weeks. Until then, don't sleep.